Welcome to episode 52 of FRT, the IAF podcast on the intersection of finance regulation and technology. We're at the IAF annual membership meeting and we're joined today by Hugh Van Steenis, Senior Advisor to the CEO of UBS, previously Senior Advisor to the Governor of the Bank of England, where he was the author of the Bank of England's Future of Finance report. It was a very forward-looking, wide-ranging report published on the 20th of June, and we're delighted to have Hugh here with us to run through some of the key conclusions and some of how the Bank of England will take this report forward. Hugh, thanks for joining us. Let's jump straight in, and, and I want to talk firstly about payments. To begin with, I think one of the most striking things I found in the report was about the trend towards cashlessness or cash light. We're aware how dramatic that's been in some of the Nordic countries, but the UK is not too far behind. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and perhaps what's driving that trend? Thanks very much, Rad. I think that the changes in payments are moving very swiftly. And so in the work I did for the bank, I tried to focus on a couple of key questions. One was, how many years behind Sweden are we? Cash transactions have fallen 80% in the last decade. And it means, you know, actually we're getting to a situation where some people living in the sticks or who are disadvantaged are really struggling in that economy. Our work suggested the UK may only be four to six years behind Sweden. And so one key conclusion was, what is the minimum viable cash infrastructure you would need? And also, what are the lessons we could learn from Sweden? So we spent a lot of time thinking about access to the economy and making sure that we have a financial system which is designed for everyone. Governor Ingvers at the Riksbank talked with us previously on FRT about the importance of ensuring, and actually I should say, Johan Torgaby, the CEO of SEB and one of our board members also talked with us about the importance of ensuring that the infrastructure is there for people in remote areas and that as we move into a cashless environment, we don't leave people behind just purely out of not having the telecommunications and digital infrastructure in place. Now, I guess that's part of one of the, the adverse consequences that could arise if we're not doing it properly. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I, I look at this also glass half full. I, there are many benefits for society of moving towards digital payments. I mean, I think it's really important that in a move towards a more frictionless and fraudless payment system, actually, there's a real social good from having cheaper payment systems. So let's be clear, I'm actually very much for adopting technology. But that means that we need to make sure the whole country moves at a similar pace. And so we also spent some time in our work thinking through how do we make sure that broadband and a mobile telephony reception was ubiquitous. One of the challenges, uh, Brad, of technology is it's breaking down traditional boundaries, not only between industries, but also the way regulators think about their business. You know, in the past, why would a central bank have had to talk to a mobile telephony regulator? Well, actually, in this current age, both in emerging markets, I was with the governor of one of the East African countries yesterday. That's a key challenge. Similarly, in the UK, regulators will need to join up hands in ways they've never had to before. So I want to talk more about payments further in a moment, but taking your reference to Africa there, one of the most fascinating things I've heard in this annual membership meeting was from Yako Grobler, the Chief Risk Officer at First Rand Bank. And he made the point when we talk about telephony and infrastructure, that what we're seeing across Africa is that the banks are adopting Western technology and that the telcos typically are adopting Chinese technology. And that just throws up a whole stack of new interoperability issues uh, when really it's, it's important that we have these things able to communicate and able to work together. Well, look, in the course of the work I did, I think we were trying to think much more, how's the economy shifting? What does that mean for finance? And therefore, what does that mean for the agenda for the central bank over the coming years? And we try to be as technology neutral as possible. So I don't think it's really for us. It's really for the private sector to decide with the governments who appropriately they want to sort of you know, get contracts from. What I cared a lot more about was setting of standards, protocols to make sure technology was interoperable, whether that be a payment system, whether that be secure open banking or what have you. So I think I've been focusing much more on standards and protocols and making sure the system is resilient. And I think that resilience is probably going to be the key part of 
uh, financial regulators' agendas for the years to come. Yeah, and the standards and the protocols that you talk about, that's really the avenue to ensuring that we do have interoperability or the potential for any new players, fintech startups, other companies, other new entrants to be able to import into that system. Let's go a bit further with payments and, and specifically let's turn to China. And you know there were some great uh, illustrations within the report of the dramatic expansion. I think it's reasonably well known, but I think your report brought to life the magnitude of that growth of the new entrant payment players in China. You gave a great quote, I think it was when you were speaking with Tracy Alloway on another podcast recently. You quoted Alex Rappel, will the innovator get distribution before the incumbent gets innovation? And I think that's a great summation of, as you put it there, that the key criterion for innovators' chances of success and longevity. Now, the Chinese payments experience you've highlighted was a resounding yes to that question. But what are the other lessons perhaps that we take from that when we think about payments across the rest of the, the global economy? Look, I think there's there's plenty of really interesting takeaways, not only from China, but from, from a variety of systems. But I think first is, It's about the pace of change. Payments is the battleground between banks, payment firms, and tech. And therefore, if you've got a big network, particularly a shopping network adjacent, you can drive this business incredibly fast. I think two is the mega trend around the world is that low value payments are shifting from cash to digital. And I think also take somewhere like Sweden. Swish is a mobile wallet, actually in that case run by the banks rather than by big techs. 65% 65% of mobile payments are being done through this, through this bank-led app. And so really that uh, these apps are cash crunchers and that we need to be you know, not only aware of them, but actually accept this is probably where customer behavior is going to be driven over time. I think the third of that there is at some level nothing new under the sun. We need to make sure that as the systems go digital, we think through antitrust, security, and resilience in the same way that we always have. But I think there's a particularly interesting antitrust issue in China you know, Alipay and WeChat Pay represent pretty much 90% of all mobile payments. And so we have got to accept that network effects are incredibly strong. And so we also spent some time thinking about leveling the playing field for both banks and payment firms to ensure that they can deliver great value for money, faster, better, cheaper for clients. But also we think about the bigger picture industry structure issues. So you've just referred there to payments as the new battleground, to the antitrust issue, to the network effects and a level playing field. And and let's talk a little bit further specifically on the the notion of the level playing field in the context of new entrants and things like open banking, where UK has really been the pioneer. PSD2 in Europe has followed. We see new similar structures emerging in Mexico and Hong Kong and Japan and Australia. It's a topic that a lot of our member firms talk about. And what I found interesting in your report and in a lot of your commentary since there's kind of two sides of a level playing field coin here. And I, I think you know, it's a real credit to you and your report that you address both of them. That on one hand, there is, a, I think, a very legitimate concern within the industry that open banking regimes can require bank data to be shared with new entrants without there being any symmetrical obligation the other way. And a lot of banks will have the concern there that somebody like an Amazon can ask for a customer's bank data, put it together with everything else that they know about that customer, what they read, what speed they read at, what time they log on, et cetera and that nobody else can have that same opportunity. And then on the other hand, a number of the new entrants will talk about the fact that banks enjoy access to funding support, the Fed window and the like, which new entrants don't have the opportunity to. And I thought it was really interesting that your report was probably one of the the relatively few instances I've seen that actually refer to both sides of that. There are a great set of issues that you've you've just raised. Um, So if I take the payment space first, I think a central bank at one level is almost seeking to be indifferent about who are the winners and losers in society. It's never quite as simple as that because at the end of the day, you need a profitable, resilient banking system because it is so critically important to delivering finance for society. 
But one avenue we explored was to help businesses and consumers get access to cheap domestic and cross-border payments. Should payment firms have direct access not only to the payment engine that the central banks run, but also, quite frankly, to their facilities. And in exchange for that, we felt that therefore the payment firms had to jump through all the same hoops and be regulated to the same level. And at the moment, that's really not the case. And so there's a whole kind of a package about how payment firms should engage. And I think that's a really interesting piece of work that the Bank of England is going to be taking forward. But you also raised the issue of open banking. And I think this is one where I think I'd give it sort of one cheer out of three, where open banking was set up originally as a response to an antitrust investigation by the UK's authority. And I think open finance is a really important and powerful idea where clients can have data, whether it's from the financial institution or from elsewhere, you know, work on their behalf. So I think it's an idea. It's really powerful. But like everything in life, the devil is in the detail. As we looked at open banking in the UK, naturally, there's some teething issues. A bit like driving in the snow. If you're the first car on the snow, you don't know how fast to go. You don't know where to go. But if you're the third, fourth, fifth car, it's a lot easier. And I think that the UK probably has got some design flaws, which it needs to iron out. I, in particular, was focused about liability. If a customer's data or a payment were to go out of the system and were lost or were frauded or had a cyber attack, who is on the hook? And at the moment, the way the rules are framed is it kind of the bank has to pay up. Well, guess what? If they're on the hook for anything that goes wrong by any third party, they're going to be pretty damn cautious and, quite frankly, appropriately cautious. As a result, open banking really has struggled to take off in the UK. And I think therefore, almost for all the time, effort and expense the banks have put to work, for the moment, it's really not delivering very much. So I very much hope that uh, the work that a number of regulators can take forward is learn from those teething issues and really improve it in the next versions. We talk about open banking in part as a data sharing framework. Let's take data in a slightly different direction. The role of cloud in particular as an enabler for data in how it's stored and managed and how it's utilized and fed into advanced analytics. And I thought your report gave a great snapshot of how cloud adoption so far has been relatively slow across the financial services industry, as you'd expect in a regulated sector, a highly risk-conscious sector. But it's increasing, gathering pace, and you mapped out a number of scenarios, a high and low scenario of where that might project to. But of course, underpinning all of that is the role of the cloud service providers and the sense that perhaps the three main cloud service providers are becoming increasingly more akin to a critical infrastructure. That's a question we've had a lot over the last couple of days throughout this annual membership meeting. So I'm interested in your thoughts. You know, I can see on one hand that the cloud service providers do look intuitively more like being some sort of critical infrastructure. But the moment you scratch the surface, it looks very difficult as to how you would actually operationalize such a a status or designation. I'm interested in your thoughts. That's a starting point. I think the financial firms are going to be all in on the cloud. Cloud has matured to the point that it can meet the very high and demanding expectations of both regulators and financial services. And the benefits that you know, Brad, from your own fantastic work in your own cloud papers around business agility, faster innovation, cyber defense, and quite frankly, partnering up with other fintechs so you can benefit from best of breed, best ideas of, of small, large and mid-sized firms. It strikes me the firm should be all in. Number two, you've also written about uh, really eloquently is that the data economy is exploding. So how on earth could we expect banks, you know, doing their own data centers to be building one every year? <laughs> Uh, why wouldn't you outsource this and benefit from the scale and expertise of some of the largest cloud service providers? So I think this trend is very much entrenched. And I have to say, in, even in, in the time I was working on the report with the governor, I saw a tipping point. And I think it came partly because the cloud service providers understood to actually have a really good share of wallet in financial services. 
they needed to adopt the standards and professional codes and governance frameworks that, quite frankly, a bank, insurance company, stock exchange, what have you, would demand. That's the good side of it. How do you then invigilate it? Well, here's an interesting issue. So one aspect of the work I did for the governor was to think about not only what were the right policies, but what were the right capabilities the central bank needed? You know, do they have the technology expertise to go and look at a data center and work out what's right? Or should they just be thinking much more about control frameworks and making sure like a board, they're holding the executive accountable for you know, good practice? It's a fine line. I suspect over time, central banks, regulators will need to go and invigilate the cloud service providers. But what they do, it's probably going to be more about control frameworks and cybersecurity and what happens if shit goes wrong than rather than necessarily having on-premises access, because what does that mean in a kind of distributed model anyway? And maybe that also reflects some of what I think needs to happen more broadly across digital finance, which is a pivot from, uh, I guess, traditional regulation and legislation and more towards an emphasis on supervision, where you have the scope to be more dynamic, perhaps, and ensure that you're able to keep pace in a technology-neutral way to pick up one of your themes from earlier. Let's, let's turn to RegTech, uh, RegTech and SubTech. And you know, there were some great colourful illustrations in the report around the volumes of data points that are taken in by the Bank of England, opportunities to modernise in that space. Can I get you to talk a little bit about some of those opportunities for modernising supervision? The amount of data that any financial regulator is collecting is exploding. And so I think my base case was that central banks need to embrace machine learning as a fundamental technique to keep their finger on the pulse and police the financial system. One analogy we used was that the average supervisor was receiving the data equivalent of the complete works of Shakespeare twice a week. Well, there's no way that even the best A-level high school student can actually keep up with that, let alone a financial regulator. So you need to have wonderful techniques to try and spot anomalies or, or think about fact patterns emerging. I think the second is the rule book itself is quite complex. As a result of the Basel reforms and post-crisis regimes, the rule book in the UK is now longer than the Old Testament. Even, a, again, a good student can't keep up with that. More importantly, it gets revised every quarter. So a machine-readable handbook should be an aspiration for regulators. There are some pretty deep philosophical issues because you want people not just to be obeying the law, but also obeying the spirit of the law. Just having machines reading, therefore, does pose some quite deep fundamental issues for a financial regulator. And of course, the other point is that post-crisis regulation has, I think, resolved and solved many of the fundamental failings of the system, but it's proven to be quite expensive because we've thrown people at it rather than necessarily use technology. And so we also had um, our friends at McKinsey estimate that reporting to the financial regulators probably cost two to four and a half billion pounds a year on top of all the compliance costs. And so again, harnessing technology to try and make the system more efficient, because let's be honest, banks, insurers will simply pass that on to customers. And one of the really energizing parts of the work for the governor was really to always try and bring it back to what is the fundamental mandate of the bank, but also how can finance serve the economy. And a very expensive financial system is not necessarily one which is really fit for purpose. Now, the timing of this report was interesting. It landed on uh, June 20. It was a, an interesting week because two days earlier was the publication of the Libra white paper, which has done a lot to galvanize the focus around digital currencies. I think in a lot of jurisdictions, it has invigorated some central banks thinking around having central bank digital currencies. And so I think, you know, whilst we've seen the G7 stablecoins report very recently, it's important to look beyond Libra and to other initiatives that may come to play. Interested in your thoughts as to whether, firstly, whether central banks should indeed pursue central bank digital currencies? And secondly, realistically, what might that actually look like? You know, the Libra, to some extent, has done a service that it's, it's actually brought to the surface 
how fast the payments industry is changing. And I think, quite frankly, some of the policymakers probably had not been focusing on that as much. Let's take a starting point. Money is already digital. You know, in most cases, when you pay with your Visa or MasterCard, it's a credit claim going from one institution to another. It's not actually real cash. And so we already live in a digital world. And I spent an awful lot of time thinking through how can we make that a payment system far more efficient and fraudless. And, you know, one really important example there, which I actually learned from looking at all of the blockchain pilots, was actually the messaging layer. Having a much richer messaging layer. So is it Mr. B car? Is it Mr. Brad car with the following date of birth, with the following address? Having that incremental information can dramatically reduce fraud, can also reduce the number of failed payments, which is obviously where a lot of the cost is. So messaging standards are really important. And the bank is going to be investigating whether the legal identifier numbers should be used for small business payments in the future, which is an exciting step forward. But then we go to the slightly more radical, should we have a central bank digital currency? I did get some great advice, not only from the current governors, but also from some retired folk and who are you know, wise owls of central banking. And I think for me, there are some really profound issues which a central bank digital currency, particularly a blockchain one, raises. And for my money, the costs outweigh the benefits. And interestingly, Governor Brainard gave a great speech here in Washington a couple of days ago, which also took the Fed's view that the costs outweighed the benefits. Now, what are they? So first is, if you're moving to a new technology, you need to make sure if it's going to be the fundamental way that we pay, it is battle tested at scale. This technology simply is not battle-tested at scale, not even today, not even tomorrow. So, for this, so let's be clear, this is still a thought experiment. Number two, the way central banks are organized is typically a kind of two-tier system. You've got the central bank, which deals with wholesalers, like the banks or insurers, and then all the innovation, all the connectivity is done by the private sector. Now, I think that is appropriate because if the central bank became the ultimate provider, every single citizen of the country would need a bank account with the central bank. And not only that, given most people have dollars or pounds abroad, maybe even a whole bunch of foreigners will need accounts. Just think about what that means in terms of disintermediating the existing banking system. What does that do for financial stability? In a crisis, would people run from private balances to the central bank balances? What does that mean for monetary transmission? There's some deep, profound issues, which quite frankly are a bit of a distraction for, from where we are today with our you know, lackluster economic growth. So what I thought has been very reassuring about uh, both the Bank of England's work, but also what I've heard at Washington this week is whether central banks should then take on the challenge, how can they be a platform for innovation? And how can they make sure that the cost of payments domestically and cross-border can come down? And I think that's where the puck is going. And I was delighted that I was able to contribute at least a few ideas to that journey. I like the fact that you use the, the analogy of the puck there, because I was going to bring in a Canadian example, perhaps to contrast with the Swedish model and what Governor Ingvers has described. And I think that's very common with the model that you just set out, where the citizen would be able to face directly to the central bank and have an account there. As I understand it, the Bank of Canada is thinking more along the lines of a citizen would be able to carry digital loonies on their phone and pay for that in stores, probably not terribly unlike what Swedish citizens can already do with Swish, and that they would be able to replenish the digital loonies on their phone through a download from their Scotiabank or RBC or TD account. And in that model, we're not really fundamentally changing anything. We're rather just modernizing a payments mechanism and the digital loonies on the phone essentially replace going to an ATM and getting banknotes out. But, but then, but let's be clear, that's already happening. What's fascinating about payments is quite how different different countries' experiences are. Even within Europe, you know, Germany and Switzerland love having cash. Uh, Norway, Sweden are short cash. Holland, Holland and the UK actually look remarkably similar. Uh, for instance, there's a chart in our report which showed that in the States, uh, there are four and a half times more cash transactions per person than in the UK. 
So there's real diversity. So I think, you know, let's be honest, you can already pay with your phone. You can already pay with your wallet. In fact, the, the lesson to me from both China and Sweden is we all love digital wallets and it's a great way to make the system cheaper. So we can debate the ideology. Is this a digital currency or not? The future of money is mobile and it's electronic. It's just a question then about which particular tech stack is supporting it. And in a way, again, central banks will have views on that, but they should almost just let the private sector get on and innovate, and they should be there to help set the standards. To underline your point, in the same week that your report was published, I travelled from Stockholm to Frankfurt, and I thought I'd gone back in time 20 years from, <laughs> from how you paid in Stockholm to having a very grumpy taxi driver in Frankfurt who didn't want to accept my credit card. Um, Hugh, I'd like to conclude with perhaps looking forward at what comes next from this report. I think you've spoken about five major initiatives that the Bank of England is planning to take forward in implementing and delivering on what is really a, a very wide-ranging report and, and a wide-ranging set of quite far-reaching implications. Well, look, uh, so uh, let's be clear. I think you know all credit to the governor for his sort of leadership and in particular for the Bank of England to try and really engage deeply at a really deep level and across many different aspects about how can they help the financial system to be as, as good as it could be. The bank bucketed the response into five. So one is, how can it make the payment system fit for a digital era? That obviously means both dating digital payments regulation. It's about the access directly to the bank's balance sheet and payments facilities, and also making sure that no one is left behind in this journey. So making sure that the cash economy is viable and vibrant. I think second is to be a world leader in reg tech and digital regulation and really take advantage of machine learning and other techniques, uh, you know, using APIs, for instance, potentially collect regulatory data in the future to make the system better, more efficient, more effective. Third is to try and help SMEs get access to finance more cheaply. And again, that really plays to the theme that you've written around, Brad, around the data economy and using richer data files to help SMEs get better access to finance. Fourth is that uh, the bank can act as a platform for innovation and help the financial system upgrade and move into new technology, but do it in a safe and resilient way. And I think that means, you know, it's cloud, it's API, it's machine learning, but it's doing it in a responsible way. So for instance, what's the right way to treat data in a confidential, effective and ethical way? And then lastly, which is one topic which is really, you know, uh, the IF has done a great work on is then to ensure a smooth transition to a low carbon world. Now I realized that in a report which was really long tech, you know, why did we talk about this? And I think that it was really important to the governor and myself that we thought about what are the big transitions. The opportunity of doing this report was to think about what are the biggest mega trends over the next five to 10 years. And clearly, the change in the climate and what that means for the financial system, I think is an appropriate question for the central bank. And so on the back of the work, the Bank of England will not only launch an exploratory stress test into how transition ready the banking system is in two years time using some TCFD data, but it'll become the first central bank of the world to put its own portfolio on those same standards. So it's going to hold itself to the very same standards. So I think it's a very exciting agenda. It's one that the governor led with real verve. And you can see this here in Washington about how he's really taking forward these initiatives, not just at a national level, but influencing the international debate. And it's one I sincerely hope that is now sufficiently embedded that the bank will follow through irrespective of who is the new governor. Hugh, many thanks. It's a fantastic report. And I think it's a fantastic example of a leading regulator that has been forward looking in their approach in the steps to convene the report in the first place, but also in looking to taking each of those five initiatives that you mentioned forward. 
We haven't touched on everything in the report. You mentioned briefly sustainability there, and there's some great descriptions there of the work needed to ensure that the transition is as orderly as possible. But there's also some quite substantive content you have on ageing and demographics, on cybersecurity, and on international regulatory cohesion. So I, I do very much commend this report as essential reading for anyone that hasn't already read it. I don't often say this, but it's actually truly worth reading completely from cover to cover. So thank you for being with us and, and sharing these highlights. It would also be remiss for me not to thank you for the engagement that you and the team at the Bank of England have had with us at the IF. In fact, as we look back while we're at annual meeting time, it was pretty much right on this day a year ago that we had a, a great consultative roundtable together during the annual membership meeting in Bali 12 months ago. So we thank you for that support and engagement. And, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned machine learning in those conclusions as well. Of course, the Bank of England and the FCA have recently published a report on machine learning. And Tom Mutton from the Bank of England spoke on our panel on that uh, a couple of days ago. Thank you very much for your time, Hugh. Thank you very much indeed, Brad. Ahead on FRT, in our upcoming episodes, we're going to talk with Chris Giancarlo on his ideas for a digital dollar, perhaps an alternate view on one issue that we just touched on. We'll also bring back some highlights from the Singapore FinTech Festival coming up in November. Please join us for those great discussions on all podcast apps and also on the IAF website. I'm Brad Carr, and thanks for joining us on FRT.